0: Hi, guys. Welcome back to the True Crime B&B. This is Beth, and as you're about to notice, there is not a Bailey today. The reason we've been out of action for three weeks is because I was trying to work out the future of the podcast. Bailey has decided to step back from it. There's only so much mental energy any one person has to offer the various endeavors they undertake, and since she has an understaffed place of employment and she has an unpredictable schedule... She just doesn't have it in her to research, write, record, and edit every week, like we somehow managed to do for 16 months. That said, the door will always be open if she feels able to do a story or even just record with me, but in the meantime, I will be bringing in some of my podcaster friends to guest with me, hopefully as either the good guy or the bad guy, but at least so you don't have to listen to me blather away by myself, like today. Also, I can't commit to doing an episode every week anymore, because I also have a million things going on in my life, and now that my editor extraordinaire and head cat handler has opted out, it will obviously all be on me to handle all the aspects of production. So, I'm shooting for every other week, but we'll see how that works. Long story short, I'm just not ready to let the podcast fall apart, because it's meant so much to me, and it was something really amazing and cool to do with my daughter. Those recordings are so special to me. I had actually hoped we could do a transition episode where Bailey would record with me, but we couldn't even pull that off. So all that said, it's just me and you today. And so I'm going to tell you the sad and tragic story of the Coffees in 1986 in northeastern Pennsylvania. William Morris Coffey III was born June 12, 1952 in North Carolina, His parents were William J. Coffey Jr. and Gertrude Hines, and he had a sister named Diane and a brother named Robert. He had been married early in his life, but that marriage ended in 1978, and his son from that marriage lived in New Jersey with his mother. William had one year of college, but then went into the Marines during the Vietnam War. Ruth Fern Miller was born 11 days before William Coffey on July 1, 1952, in Spencer, Iowa. Her parents were Harry Miller and Bertha Johnson Miller, and she had a sister Janet and a brother Donald. Ruth also had a single year of college under her belt. She was known by all to be happy, friendly, sweet, and well-liked. She had been living in the Pittsburgh area until about 1978, when she had moved to Shenandoah, where a few years later she met William, whom everyone called Bill. William and Ruth had a civil wedding ceremony on April 26, 1984, when they were both just about to turn 32 and were married in Winchester, Virginia. They never had any children, but they were considered to be a sweet, attractive, loving couple. People never knew of them to argue or fight, and they got along beautifully, as far as everyone could see. When Bill had entered the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War in the early 1970s, he had suffered a serious head injury during boot camp, and had ended up serving only four months after he had been deployed to Vietnam. Bill had struggled after the head injury with epilepsy, which caused him to suffer frequent seizures. In the beginning, his seizures had been moderate or mild, but over time, they had become grand mal seizures. His friends said that when he was in the grip of his most violent seizures, that he had the strength of three men. Bill was told about the strength he exhibited while he was in the midst of seizing, and he made sure to warn his friends that if he should be in the middle of one, they should not get close to him. But Ruth? Ruth didn't stay away. Ruth was beside William, Bill, for better or for worse, and when he experienced a seizure, Ruth seemed to know exactly how to react and how to keep him from causing himself harm as much as possible. Even the VA hospital in Wilkes-Barre told him they had done as much as they could for him, and they pretty much cut him loose to go find help for himself. He found a specialist in Philadelphia who told Bill that there was a surgery that was sometimes used as a last resort for younger people, but by the mid-30s, it would be a risk that Bill might suffer adverse effects or could even die from the surgery. Ruth and Bill read everything they found on research and new treatment options for epilepsy, feeling encouraged by articles about promising new therapies or medications. Bill was completely dependent upon Ruth for everything because he couldn't drive, couldn't get himself to his own doctor appointments, and Ruth needed to take care of him when his body went into a seizure. So Bill asked his doctors to try anything, to try everything. As he would go into a new medication, sometimes they were promising starts, and he would feel like he was regaining control over himself and not suffering so many seizures, but all of the medications eventually started to become less effective after his body got acclimated to it. And Bill and Ruth would be disappointed and feel like they were starting all over again from zero. Bill's friends said it was exciting when the new medications were helping him, and he seemed like himself again, but then with each successive failure, he would crash further and further back down. His moods were becoming dark, and Ruth understood why. He wanted to be strong and independent. He wanted to be the husband he was expected by society to be in his generation. But his body and his condition prevented him from making any progress. So as he became more and more discouraged, his attitude towards Ruth sometimes got snide and he would occasionally say hurtful things to her. But she knew it was his depression talking and she took it in stride. When he was William, he was sweet to her. When he was this broken soul, he could be verbally abusive. She knew there was a difference and she wanted to stand by him so they could find the solution together. But over time, Bill noticed that other people were uncomfortable and awkward around him, particularly if a seizure came on. They didn't know what to do. They felt embarrassed. They were a little bit frightened. Bill didn't blame them, but he was still upset by these reactions. So he started backing away from social activities. He didn't want to be out in public where something socially mortifying might happen. He stayed home a lot, and he did projects around the house while Ruth supported them by managing a photo processing storefront. In May 1986, the couple had relocated from Shenandoah to Bury's Grove. Bury's Grove had been a popular family cabin resort until the mid-20th century. It was a pretty, pastoral, peaceful place. That's a lot of peas. And Ruth and Bill thought it would be a good influence upon Bill's dark moods, so they bought a little house that had been one of the old resort cabins. The cabins weren't big but they were on the shore of what had been renamed Moon Lake and the atmosphere in the little community was relaxed and serene. A contractor who had been hired to install siding on their home at Moon Lake said that quote, they were one of the nicest couples I ever worked for end quote. He said that one of Bill's only happinesses was being able to work on the house and turn it into a little dollhouse for Ruth. He truly loved her and she truly loved him. All they wanted was to grow old together and make each other happy, but Bill's physical state was taking a lot out of him. After a severe seizure, Bill was unable to do much of anything, and it made him upset and angry. He had to rest, sometimes for days, before he could be up and around again after one of his grand mal's. He felt like he was wasting his life lying around and recovering from the intense physical exertion and soreness that he experienced after going through a seizure. He also started to be unable to control his bodily functions during his seizures, and this was really upsetting and embarrassing to him. All of these factors were contributing to an ever-deepening depression that nothing seemed to be able to help. In mid-October 1986, Bill had been at the Schuylkill Mall and had suffered a seizure at the mall. Frank Ward, a mall security guard, had come over to help. Afterward, Bill had sought Frank out to thank him for his help and for not being afraid of him. That gesture had meant a lot to Bill, who was used to having people a little bit scared to even come near him. Bill told Frank that there had once been a time when he had gone through a seizure in public, and a police officer had actually taken him to jail, suspected of being drunk. So Frank's kindness and calm had been a really welcome thing to Bill. In fact, Bill had expressed his gratitude every single time he had seen Frank in the next three weeks, and they became friends. It seemed like a great thing for Bill to have a buddy who wasn't awkward or freaked out in his company. On Wednesday, November 5, 1986, Ruth's friend Virginia Morris had seen Ruth in town in the early afternoon. Ruth had expressed concern to Virginia that Bill was really not feeling well and seemed even darker and more depressed than usual. At five o'clock the same afternoon, Frank Ward, the new friend, again saw Bill at the mall while Ruth stepped into a store. He thought in hindsight that Bill recognized he was reaching the bottom of the dark pit that was trying to suck him under. As he was walking away from Frank, Bill said, quote, In case you see anything or hear anything about me, tell all my friends I love them. End quote. The chance meeting left Frank with an odd feeling because they both seemed very strange. Ruth seemed uncharacteristically nervous. The next time and the last time anyone saw the coffees, was the next morning at 7 a.m. on November 6, 1986, when their neighbor, Karen Isley, awoke to the sound of her dog barking. Karen went outside to calm the dog down. As she looked up, she saw Bill Coffey dragging Ruth between their houses down towards the edge of the lake. Ruth was wearing only a short nightgown in that November chill, apparently dragged out of her bed, and Karen couldn't understand what was happening. First, she shouted Ruth's name a few times, and then turned and ran back into the house to call police. She made the call and went back outside where she could see Ruth struggling against Bill in shallow water. She could hear Ruth's terrified and heartbroken voice trying to reason with her husband. Bill, please, I love you. I really love you. Fearing that Ruth couldn't hold out much longer in the cold, in the water, against her husband who had clearly turned a very dark corner, Karen ran inside again to call in even more urgently for help. She was told a police car was on its way, and she looked back outside. Bill, wearing only a t-shirt, was trudging out of the frigid water, but she could no longer see Ruth. Only the short nightgown Ruth had been wearing, which was now floating on top of the water. Bill vacantly went back to his house, went inside, and shut the door. Moments later, he opened the door and looked briefly outside, then closed it again. Within only a few minutes, Karen saw flames in the coffee household. Police arrived shortly thereafter and by then the house was fully engulfed in flames. Ruth's body had bobbed to the surface of the lake and a neighbor found a large bloody kitchen knife between the two houses where Bill had been dragging Ruth towards the lake. As the fire department arrived to put out the house fire, police gathered at the lakeside where Ruth's body still floated and at 9.25 a.m. she was finally taken out of the water. Her autopsy revealed that she had died from... Quote, a stab wound accelerated by drowning. The neighbor who had installed Coffee's new siding, James Daigle, since he was familiar with the house layout, was asked by police to walk them through the house in a search for Bill's body, but when James had arrived at 8 a.m., it was still too smoky. When Bill had returned from the lake, he had entered the house, looked back outside for a moment, then he had poured gasoline in the house in two different locations, and set it ablaze in an attempt to take his own life. He had succumbed to smoke inhalation and was found deceased in a bedroom. I, as I was researching this story, wanted to have a better understanding if all of these events were actually causal or if they were separate. From what I read, severe, moderate, or even mild head trauma has been associated with some cases of epilepsy. As we know, Bill received a serious head trauma during his marine boot camp, so yes, that may be causal. Although, of course, we can't be 100% certain that's why he developed the condition. But he told people it started after the head injury. Next, is there any underlying risk of violence in people with epilepsy beyond the general population? Epilepsy is still a hugely misunderstood condition. The Epilepsy Foundation website states that, quote, it is now believed that most people with epilepsy are no more likely than others to act aggressively. A few do have episodes of aggressive behavior between seizures." End quote. The episodes of violence between seizures are called interictal aggression. But the concept of interictal aggression seems to be controversial and I think for good reason. To me there are two factors. One, Head trauma can lead to epilepsy. Head trauma can also be a predecessor to violent behavior, whether or not there is epilepsy. There are two potential results from head injury, but they aren't necessarily related. And two, there are lots of factors that affect a person's propensity toward violence. It's likely that some people would be violent whether they had epilepsy or not. So while there are certainly some people who have epilepsy and might become violent, It doesn't seem proven that their violent behavior is caused by their medical condition. And the fact that people who have epilepsy are still somewhat stigmatized by people who don't understand their condition might mean that if such a person does exhibit any violence, the stigma could make it stand out more in onlookers' minds, and therefore they might correlate the two. One interesting side note on this subject is that gabapentin, which came out in the 1970s as an anticonvulsive medication, has had studies that show an apparent correlation between taking gabapentinoids and an increased risk of suicidal behavior. I think it might be important to remember here that Bill was asking his doctors to try anything and everything that might help him, period. So there's a good chance he may have tried gabapentin, gabapentinoids, or some variation of that. This might or might not be relevant because I don't know if Bill was on it or ever had been on gabapentin, but he might have been because it was available at the time this happened, and we know that Bill was suicidal. But this apparent connection seems to be problematic, especially amongst a vulnerable population. Another gabapentinoid that has even higher outcomes of suicidal behavior is pregabalin, known commercially as Lyrica. The third factor in this discussion is the depression that bill was experiencing. He had so many components to his depression. The seizures themselves, the time he lost while he was recovering from his seizures, the embarrassment he felt about standing out publicly when they happened to him, his inability to control his bladder during them, the failed drug trial time and again, what he felt was the stigma against him because he thought people feared to be around him, his lack of independence, not being able to drive, not being able to hold down a job, and so many other things that an adult automatically expects to be able to do. This depression was real. The Veterans Administration Hospital basically cut him off when they decided there was nothing they could do for his epilepsy. But my question is, did anyone ever attempt to treat his depression? I found no indication that anyone did. In the early 80s, there was a stigma on being treated for mental health issues that was almost as strong as that for a person with epilepsy. The whole Vietnam generation came back from that terrible experience and they were just on their own. I'm not saying this is what happened with Bill because he only served four months of active duty after the seizures had started, but if we weren't treating soldiers who had come back with terrible PTSD from the horrors of that war, Bill certainly wouldn't have immediately thought, I wonder if the way I feel is treatable. So he probably didn't ask his doctor about the depression, and frankly his doctor at that time might have just told him to toughen up or talk to somebody. He was suffering. He was going through real and upsetting experiences. Ruth stood by him every step of the way. Even to her dying breath, she was trying to remind him that she was on his side. She loved him. She was trying to help him, but he had turned a corner, was going to end it all, and in the end, he took Ruth with him. Both were victims of things in different ways, but ultimately, Ruth was the victim because all she tried to do was help. Ruth and Bill had their funerals together and were both buried in the Westmoreland County Memorial Park in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. No one doubted that Bill loved Ruth as much as Ruth loved Bill. Bill knew he was falling into a deep well and he just didn't know how to get out of it. In the end, Bill snapped. But as Ruth's friend Virginia Morris later said, quote, Bill wasn't an ogre. He was a very kind person, tender and loving he'd give you the shirt off of his back if you asked for it, end quote. I tried really hard to find photos of Ruth and Bill because I would like them to be remembered, but I have not been able to find any. So if anyone listening has any photos of Ruth and Bill, I would be happy to share those on my Instagram so that people can see and remember Ruth Fern Miller Coffee and William Morris Coffee III. There are so many more resources available to people now who are suffering with depression or who have thoughts of suicide. If you are struggling or you or someone you know is suffering with depression, there is help available. In the U.S., call the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline at 988 In the UK, you can call the SANE line crisis line at 0300-304-7000. In Australia, you can call 13-11-14. Or in Canada, the Canadian Mental Health Association can be reached at 1-833-456-4566. And I'm sorry, I can't list all of the countries, but if you can't find one in your country, message me and I'll find one for you. Guys, that is all I have for you today. I miss Bailey, and I know you miss her too. I love you guys, and I appreciate your sticking with me through this transition. Please come follow True Crime B&B on Instagram, where I post less frequently than I used to, but I will when I have additional information about people in the cases that we cover. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, but I don't like them as much. Thank you for being here, and I'll see you in a couple weeks for Episode 74. Bye, y'all. They had done as much for they could, ugh.